There's so much health advice floating around, online, among friends. But who can you really trust? Trust the experts. Listen to the world's brightest medical minds, our very own Cleveland Clinic experts. We ask them real questions, tough and intimate health questions, and we get real answers, all originally recorded live. Hi, thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Cassandra Holloway, and today you're listening to Health Essentials Podcast by Cleveland Clinic. We're broadcasting from Cleveland Clinic's main campus in Cleveland, Ohio, and we're here with Dr. Richard Figler. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Dr. Figler is the director of the Concussion Center at Cleveland Clinic, and today we're going to be talking about concussions. Before we begin, we want to remind our listeners that this is for informational purposes only and should not replace your own doctor's advice. So concussions are a hot topic lately. Everywhere you look, you know, there's controversy over professional sports and concern over young kids playing in these competitive leagues. And concussions are a big deal for a good reason, right? So let's start off with the very basics. Can you explain when someone gets a concussion, what's going on? What's happening to their brain? So uh, by definition, a concussion is a uh, transient or a traumatically induced transient disturbance of brain function. Uh, and it's, it involves a very complicated pathophysiological process. And that pathophysiological process happens when the brain gets altered. Uh, so if you think about the brain sitting in the skull, it's twisted or knocked, or the mechanical forces from the blow to the head get transmitted into the brain, and the brain responds with these neurons and these axons kind of getting stretched or irritated. That sets off this chemical process of the brain trying to heal itself. And during that process, and depending on what part of the brain it actually affects because of where the force occurs, it can affect different functions like balance or memory or um, uh, concentration or focus or even visual disturbance as well. And there, there's also usually a, a neck uh, component to this as well. So you think about your head sitting on your neck and when the head gets hit, the neck has to kind of take on some of that force as well. So we see a lot of uh, concomitant neck issues going on with concussion as well. But uh, it's a very complex process, and the brain is obviously a very complex organ, uh, and it does a great job of healing itself, but sometimes when a concussion occurs, we get in the way of that healing process. So is the brain actually moving in the skull when it gets the imp- hits the impact? So we think that there's a very little, little, very minimal movement of the brain, especially when it comes to minor injuries, more traumatic injuries, obviously, more damage, more damage, more symptoms as well, and more severity of symptoms uh, too. So we talk about a lot of sports-related concussions, which are relatively low-velocity injuries, a fall from a ladder, a motor vehicle accident, uh, much higher-velocity injuries can cause a lot more damage. Uh, so this, the, the fine movements of the brain that cause these stretching of the neurons or think what we think happens in these more lower velocity injuries versus something that would be like a fall that could potentially cause a, a brain bleed and not just a concussion. Gotcha. So you mentioned sports, falls, what are some other common causes of concussions? Yeah, so by far and away, falls is the most common. It takes up over about 50% of the concussions that are seen that present to the emergency room. Um, out of falls, uh, roughly about 80% of those falls uh, in, or occur in the elderly. You could think, you know, loss of balance, they fall, they slip on the ice. Uh, um, as they don't become, as they become less active over the course of time, they can lose that balance a little bit more readily. Uh, um, motor vehicle accidents are a little bit less common, about 13%. And then sporting injuries or traumatic injuries make up about anything that, you know, whether it's a bookshelf or whether it's a football helmet, account for about 17% of those injuries. Interesting. So 80% is because of falls. 80% in the elderly population, but overall about 50% of the injuries that occur from concussions are from falls. Interesting. 
Uh, and that could be falls slipping on the ice, that could be falls off of a bike, that could be falls off a trampoline, that could be falls off a lot of different things. It's really hard to to be able to um, uh, to to get people to admit to exactly what they're doing and collect that data from the emergency department. So when they say falls, they kind of loop them all together. So it's not necessarily going to be you know the jungle gym or the monkey bars cause two percent of the falls versus the bikes cause a lot more falls. But you could imagine you know with bike injuries if they whittle it down, a lot of those injuries can be pre prevented, and that's where the helmet loss came in years and years and years ago. Makes sense. Um, let's talk about symptoms. When someone is experiencing a concussion or has experienced it, what are some of the symptoms that might be happening? So the symptoms uh, vary, and there's a lot of symptoms that happen. The brain is obviously a very complex organism as well, and uh, or organ as well, and uh, headache is probably by far and away the most common. Dizziness, lightheadedness, difficulty with focus, concentration, inability to think. Um, sometimes those symptoms uh, aren't noticeable until after somebody gets into more complex um, activities, like going back into class, they have a hard time processing information, um, light disturbance, where they have a lot more light sensitivity, noise sensitivity, neck discomfort, um, uh, sometimes they'll have balance issues as well. Um, there's a lot of different symptoms that kind of correlate with each other uh, initially when that happens, and sometimes those symptoms are a little bit later onset, like sleep disturbance. Uh, so some people will feel more sleepy than normal, they'll have to need more rest to recover. Some people have difficulty falling asleep. Some people have trouble staying asleep. Uh, some people notice that their energy level is extremely lower. They get fatigued a lot easier during the course of the day. Um, there's a lot, some people that will develop anxiety or irritability or anxiousness after their injury as well. Uh, so there's a, there's a list of symptoms that we usually check off about 27 different symptoms every time someone comes in to evaluate them for a concussion. So we could see exactly where they fall in this, what we call a graded symptom checklist, um, to see what we can do to help them out based on which individual symptoms they present with. What about loss of consciousness? How often does that typically happen? So the numbers are variable. You can look at the literature, and it's it's roughly about 5 to 10% of people that uh, develop loss of consciousness for a concussion. So um, loss of consciousness does equal concussion, but not having loss of consciousness does not mean you didn't have a concussion. So think about 90% of people that are going to come in do not have loss of consciousness as a presenting sign for a concussion. Sure. And then how do you know when a concussion is truly dangerous? Like what are those warning signs? You know, yeah. you mentioned a lot of symptoms, but how do you know when it's really truthfully a, a dangerous right. situation? So we have, a, we have uh, over the course of the years, developed these red flags that we talk about. And the red flags are you know, kind of at the point of care, but also a little bit afterwards as well. So somebody that has a prolonged loss of consciousness, that's a concern. So think you know, lo longer than a minute, that's somebody that should probably be evaluated. Somebody that has inability to recognize people, places, or things, that doesn't go away very quickly. So you know, five minutes after their concussion, they're still asking the same questions, and they're asking who their teammates are and where they are. That's not a good sign. Repetitive vomiting, uh, headaches that that, uh, get bad, but then get more severe and get worse over the course of time. Uh, and inability for somebody to be aroused or awakened. So they're talking to you and they just start to fall asleep. Not a good sign. Uh, the, uh, if they lose consciousness and then regain consciousness and lose consciousness again, again, not a good sign. Um, significant clumsiness where they can't uh, walk around and they're, they're falling over because they can't keep on their feet. Uh, numbness, tingling in their arms, legs, or uh, 
severe neck pain. Um, all those things are uh, loss of vision, unequal pupils. Those are all concerns that we would want them to get immediate attention uh, to the emergency room. It's harder, obviously, in, in younger people and sometimes harder in older people to, to discern their mental status. And the best person to ask the question to is, you know, the person that's right next to them or close to them to see if they're acting normally or not. Um, but most people, when they're that severe, you know, a trip to the emergency room is warranted. Is there ever a point where you don't need to go to the emergency room, or do you recommend anytime there's a, a bonk on the head that you go straight to the doctor? So the, the, those, those red flags are reasons to go to the emergency room. Otherwise, the emergency room would be inundated with every knock or bump to the head. Um, again, and, and just to be clear, if you are ever concerned about it, then you should go. And just for nothing else, peace of mind. Uh, but the symptoms that are mild, symptoms that are following an expecting course, symptoms that um, have been checked out by somebody, whether it's a primary care physician, uh, sports medicine physician, pediatrician, and they, they think that it's relatively mild in the office setting uh, versus somebody who's acutely getting worse over the course of that, you know, right after the injury um, wouldn't necessarily warrant a, a, a trip to the emergency room. So we base it on severity. And, and, and you know, and if there's ever a concern, though, you know, the, the best thing to do is to be safe and, and be evaluated. In the sports realm of things, uh, laws have been passed over the course of many years that are pr to protect the athlete. Uh, and in essence, what we use as a mantra on the sidelines is we evaluate them to make sure those red flags aren't there so we can make sure that it's safe enough for them to stay there and not go transport to the emergency room. Uh, and we reevaluate them serially to make sure that they're not decompensating again, to make sure they don't need to go to the emergency room for an evaluation. Uh, but in, in essence, what the laws have dictated is that when in doubt, if they show signs and symptoms of a concussion, we sit them out. So if they come off and they look confused or they come off and they're holding their head or they have a headache, you know, protecting that young brain is extremely important. So we'll pull them out so that we can evaluate them and get them back on the field as, as quickly as we can safely. Makes sense. Absolutely. So seek medical attention if you think this might have happened. And if if any of these warning signs are manifesting, first and foremost, see the doctor. Um, okay, so say we went to the doctor, you know, we're with someone who has a concussion. What are some of the tests to see, to diagnose someone with a concussion? What do you look for? It's a great question. We're still working on that. <laughs> so there is not one validated objective test that we can do to evaluate and monitor and diagnose a concussion. So there's such a constellation of different symptoms that we use, usually typically use a battery of tests when they come in. So the greatest symptom checklist that we alluded to, those signs and symptoms that we need to discuss with them. And then we can do anything from checking their balance to their reaction time to some more in-depth neurocognitive tests. But in the basic evaluation, it should be the greatest symptom checklist and then a good exam to make sure that there's none of those things that may be kind of lurking, but we don't outwardly see. And that could be something, uh, you know, an ocular exam that could manifest symptoms, a good cervical spine exam and a thorough neural exam to make sure there's nothing underlying that might warrant further imaging or further testing down the road. Um, we do a lot of um, monitoring over the course of someone's recovery from a concussion to make sure that they're not getting worse. And so we compare those symptom checklists from point A to point B to see if there's different nooks that we can look into and say, listen, you know, your vision is off or your, your memory is off or you're having more headaches. Can we kind of delve into that and make sure that we're treating that appropriately? Because uh, it's really amazing when some of these symptom people come in with all these, these myriad of symptoms that are, are all over the place from depression, anxiety, and sleep issues, but then they come in the second visit, they're really only having sleep issues, and that's what we focus on. Uh, so trying to uh, dovetail that and to make sure that we're getting the right treatment is really important. 
So let's talk a little bit about the treatment then. So let's start like really basic. So if someone comes in and, and you're pretty sure they've had a concussion, obviously rest, time mm-hmm. off, kind of what are the basic treatment options yeah. that you would follow? So initially we want everybody to, to rest for that first kind of 24 to 48 hours and kind of really lay low. Uh, the idea is uh, based on a very simple mantra that we use, which is recognize the activities that are triggering the symptoms that you're having and then slow down or stop that activity rest the appropriate amount of time, and then you can return to that activity. So I know that sounds very simplistic, but we it works. And what we have found is that we don't, um, back in the day, we would say, well, you can't go to school for four days. And, and what we found was if they didn't go to school for four days, they didn't have that social interaction, they could have gone to school the four days. And the next thing you know, they're four days behind in school, and then they're trying to catch up, and that elevates their stress, which elevates their symptoms, which causes a prolonged recovery. So what we try to do is get them to do as much as they possibly can without aggravating their symptoms. So we call it subsymptomatic activities. So if they sit down and they start to read a paper and they notice after 10 minutes they have symptoms, and then they slow down, and they back off and they rest and their symptoms go away, then they can go back. And those symptoms can be anything from, you know, eye pain to headaches to reading the paper and seeing the, the words kind of jumble to looking at the paper and reading the paragraph and then reading the paragraph again and reading the paragraph again and not really getting it uh, to listening to somebody in class and saying, uh, you know, the teacher or the teacher's talking and then they, they can't understand what the teacher is saying, whereas before they could process that information a lot quicker. So those changes are what we're looking for from what they were before to what they're going back into school for. So after the first 24 to 48 hours, then we start to do this kind of light activity and that's mental activity, so cognitive activity. Um, we tell them try to limit their electronics because sometimes the glare from the screen or the small font can make their symptoms a little bit worse because of the increased focus and concentration. Uh, we tell them to make sure that they can they, they do what they can do to keep up with their schoolwork as well. Um, we don't advocate for people to go back to school, especially the student athlete, for half days or full days. We tell them to go to as much as they can handle, take appropriate breaks. And that goes through with everything, whether it's going back to work for people that are in the workforce um, or just going back to daily activities such as balancing a checkbook or watching TV. They can watch TV for a half hour, but they have symptoms at 45 minutes. Half hour is probably their max. The next day, maybe they go to 45 minutes. Um, We try to get them to be as active as possible, as early as possible, but again, without provoking any symptoms. Uh, so we ask them to start to do a little bit of light activities. Research has shown that you know, the inactive brain becomes kind of more stagnant and it takes a little bit longer to recover. And the, the right amount of activity is a little bit harder to find, but we base it on symptoms. So we'll get them on a stationary bike and start to get them to get their heart rate up. They have symptoms, they slow down, no symptoms, they exercise at that lower level. And we think that that elevated blood flow helps heal the brain a little bit quicker than doing nothing from a physical activity standpoint. And especially with a lot of these people that are active playing sports um, or even inactive when they're not playing sports and they have an injury, that exercise does help them get better a little bit faster. On average, how long does it take a concussion to heal? So a majority, about about 90% of the concussions will get better in about two weeks or so, 80 to 90%. Um, uh, usually the, the younger patient population, like the peds, zero to five or so, uh, and the older population take a little bit longer to get better. Uh, we found that um, you know the, the younger kids, maybe under 14, take maybe closer to four weeks, but the high school takes about two to three weeks. And we've actually found that the collegiate athlete and the professional athlete take a little bit even less time to recover. But in general, just from a gestalt for all people considered, it's roughly about two weeks or so. I'm curious, why does it take longer for younger 
people? Like, why is age a risk factor? Yeah, so we think that there's uh, the things that are going on in the brain that are what we call plasticity and the ability for the brain to kind of recover during that time, that it takes a little bit more time for it to recover based on the insult, but also on the gains that it can make as well to kind of, uh, or to, to heal itself overall. And as the more mature brain uh, is, is more mature being the 80-year-old, takes a little bit longer to recover because Unfortunately, we start to lose some of our mental capacity as we get a little bit older. And that, that middle-aged brain, that high school and that collegiate brain, we think that the high school brain is still developing. And when you really think about it, the collegiate brain is still developing till, until about 22, 25 years old or so, uh, where you know, we think that those pathways can kind of uh, help heal themselves a little bit more readily. Absolutely. It's a complicated process. <laughs> Can't even imagine. <laughs> um, so I guess, is it true that if someone gets a concussion or takes a blow to the head, do they need to be woken up like every hour? I feel like you've always heard that, like yeah. wives' tales. Is that is there any truth to that? It is a wives' tale. And I don't know which wife told us that, but <laughs> the uh, um, there is no evidence to support that that's needed. However, uh, if, if, if my child had a concussion, you know, checking on them every couple hours, not necessarily poking them with a stick to see if they're okay, but making sure that their breathing pattern is normal, totally okay. Uh, what we think helps the concussion immediately is an appropriate amount of rest. So the person that needs X number of hours of sleep it needs X plus a little bit more number of hours of sleep. And we think that that, that, that the brain no, is telling the, that concussed person that they need to sleep a little bit more. And that sleep is, is when it's long term, like, you know, you go eight hours straight is going to be more beneficial than if somebody's waking them up at two hours and saying, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? So things that we would worry about when people are, are sleeping, if they're, they have an abnormal breathing pattern, that'd be something that would be a concern. So yes, probably wake them up. But there's no evidence to suggest that if we wake them up every two hours or every one hour that they're going to get better faster. And we actually think that is probably counterproductive as far as your healing process goes. So I would advocate against that. <laughs> Good to know. Um, so we want to go back to treatment really quick and touch on medications. If someone just had a concussion, what medicines should they be taking and what's off limits? Yeah, so we prefer them to not take any medications. And I know that sounds kind of counterproductive to what we have in our, our, in our medicine cabinets, but one of the things that we try to do is monitor their symptoms. So they're, they're able to monitor their symptoms so they're not making their symptoms worse and prolonging their recovery. If they take medicine and they go do an activity in that four to six hour window when it's working, they can do a lot of stuff and probably not have too many symptoms. When that medicine wears off, typically they have much worse symptoms. And then what do they do? They go to reach for more medication. So that kind of, it's a relatively counterproductive for their recovery process. We do, however, advocate them taking medication at night before they go to bed if they're having a headache so they can go to sleep a little bit easier and they don't have pain affecting their ability to get a good night's sleep. Um, what we try to tell them is to take Tylenol as opposed to Advomotrin or leave in that initial phase because we think that there's a theoretical risk with taking aspirin or some of the anti-inflammatories uh, like ibuprofen or naproxen sodium that may actually increase their risk of bleeding after the injury as well, which especially with somebody who is you know has a head trauma, we don't want to induce any more bleeding. Sure, makes sense. Um, so... If you have one concussion, are you more at risk for getting additional concussions in the future? Yeah, it, that's true. Um, and we think that that, that is, and, and it's actually been borne out in, in, in data that we have back from you know 1990s, 1980s, that if somebody went back to play too soon, they had a high, much higher risk for a concussion within the first 10 days. It was something like 90%. And then as time went by, after they recovered from their concussion, their risk went down, but it was still there. So we, we use the number of about two to five times the increased risk after you get a first concussion. 
but we don't know exactly when the brain completely heals. We know that symptom-wise we can say that the brain is completely healed, but we don't know when that threshold goes down back down to zero. And it might be months, it might be years after, that, after the initial injury where it actually does go back down to zero. What we're trying to do is protect the brain, and we want the brain to heal completely so the brain can you know, do what it needs to do to heal itself, and then it gives them the best chance of not having any kind of potential long-term issues down the road. Uh, so making sure that uh, they're, they're, they're very much aware of their symptoms and they're being honest with their symptoms, they're getting the appropriate treatments to make sure that they have a complete recovery before, before they go back to potentially increasing the risk of another injury is very, very important. Um, is there any truth around getting how getting these competitive, um, repetitive concussions can alter the brain? I feel like we keep seeing a lot of stuff about professional sports players and just the risk of them, you know, getting these concussions over and over again and having to take themselves out. Like, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's it's a that's a very complicated issue. Uh, but if I broke it down into simple things and and said if I were to keep punching you in the arm you know, repetitively every day, that arm's probably going to hurt. And even though your tissue is trying to heal itself in between every punch that you get, it is still has to go through the process of healing and that takes time. And so what we think happens with the brain is the brain heals itself in between those episodes. And we think that there's a lot of different variables that go into this, a, a lot. And we don't know why some people develop uh, these chronic traumatic encephalopathic changes, which are these, these um, little tau proteins that develop in different parts of the brain. We don't know if that's a byproduct of the healing process or if that's a problem with the healing process to start off with. We don't know if there's, there's probably some genetic uh, predisposition to it. There's some behavioral uh, predisposition to it. Uh, there's probably more increased, you know, load or mechanical forces, like you mentioned, that can go along with somebody who's played football in their life that could potentially cause some of those changes. Um, what we don't know is is why some people get it. Now, if you look at different studies, you take a group of people that played high school football and you take their age match counterparts that played other sports, there's no significant increased risk of depression or anxiety associated with them. Um, if you look at NFL football players and you look at age match controls, the risk of them having uh, suicide is actually lower in the NFL football players, despite what you would hear in the media, because the, the general population has a higher risk of, of suicide than the NFL football players. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that, and we don't necessarily know why. Um, but we don't know what happens to the brain and why some people don't have this after they played football for a majority of their life and why some people do. It could, it could be these what we call sub-concussive impacts where the tra trauma is induced, trauma is induced, trauma is induced, but they continue to play. Um, I think that part of it is due to the lack of reporting and the lack of reporting that was there and the lack of awareness about concussions that really hasn't hit until the past 10, 15 years or so. So people were out there playing, they were getting concussed, they didn't heal, they got concussed again, they didn't heal, they got concussed again, and then they developed issues later on down the road that um, may have been you know, mentally um, depressed or, or anxious or, or, or um, developed Parkinson's disease that may or may not have been associated with that or may have had a pre predisposition for that based on their genetics in the first place, which is interesting because one of the things that we have found uh, in our own patient cohort and that's being shown in some of the literature as well is if somebody gets a concussion, 
and they have a family history or a personal history of depression or anxiety, their recovery goes from a very short period of time without those to an extremely long period of time if they have those incidents. So we do think that there's some kind of neurotransmitter or genetic predisposition for people to have a longer period of recovery from their concussion as well, which is, again, something that from a, a pathophysiological process, we don't know exactly why, um, but we know that if we treat that a little bit earlier, they tend to get better a little bit faster. That's fascinating. It is. It's so it really, it, it is. So many issues yeah. go into it. Yeah. And, and it's amazing when, <laughs> when you have 27 different symptoms that you could potentially treat. You know, it's not like when you come in and say, "Hey, my my throat's sore," <laughs> and so we're trying to we're still trying to figure out, you know, what is the best treatment option for each person. But you know, one of the one of the um, sayings that we use in concussion treatment is, if you've seen one concussion, you've seen one concussion. You have to treat each one of them individually to make sure that you're not missing what you can do to make sure that person gets the best outcome possible. Absolutely. And okay, so the last question I want to ask you here is about prevention. So, you know, our listeners could be the average person, or they could be the young competitive athlete or collegiate athlete. What are some tips or advice that you have about preventing concussions, you know, very high level? So, um, simple things, right? And being safe, you know, um, uh, you know, the sports that require you to wear a helmet, uh, activities that require you to wear a helmet, wear a helmet. There's a reason why there's helmets out there that for, for, to protect people from falls, right? Um, uh, exercise is an extremely important component of this. Uh, you know, when you talk about the elderly having falls, uh, accounting for 80% of the concussions that are presented in the emergency room, if their balance was just a little bit better by them doing some kind of exercise, whether it's walking, whether it's yoga, whether it's Tai Chi, whether it's strengthening, whatever it is, just doing something to help, you know, keep that system in check is going to help reduce the risk of falls. Wearing a seatbelt, right? So even though you know motor vehicle accidents don't account for a ton of them, but they do account for some of them, and obviously the severity can be decreased significantly by wearing a seatbelt when you're in the car. Um, not taking undue risk, and that's one of the reasons why we think there's such a high proportion of injuries that happen in that younger age population, is because they're more risk takers. And so the younger kids are going to fall; they're going to climb on cabinets and they're going to potentially fall. But that you know, four to 17, 25 year old age group. That, that is the higher risk population, you know, the skateboarders, the, you know, the, the jumpers, and playing sports as well. Um, overall, that age group accounts for about a third of the overall concussions, and which kind of makes sense, and especially from a, an activity-related standpoint. Um, it's, it's not taking undue risks, you know, and playing with, within themselves. And the other part of it is, is making sure that they recognize that if they do have signs and symptoms of a concussion, to pull themselves out. Not to rely on somebody else to do it, but for them to report their own symptoms if they're playing a sport and they don't feel right. Their head is bothering them. They're a little bit confused. They did get hit in the head, but they don't remember exactly how they get hit in the head. And it wasn't like one big blow where everyone went, oh my gosh, that hurt. But it's, it's one of those maybe potentially accumulative things where they're just not feeling right. Them pulling themselves off typically means that they're going to get better, they're going to get better faster. So instead of them playing with that injury and getting more blows to their head, they can, they can get better a little bit faster. Um, uh, one of the things that we've done as, you know, as sports medicine physicians has been able to detail what their risks are when they're playing sport as well. So if you, we, you know, from the NFL uh, changing the rules to the collegiate um, uh, uh, NCAA uh, changing the rules has decreased the number of concussions overall. You know, and some latest data has shown that uh, in football, there's actually been an increase in the incidence of high school related concussion reporting. And over the past five or 10 years, 
And the reason why I think that is, is because of awareness and education, which is huge. And that's, that's what we wanted to see. Now, the other component of that is uh, that same study showed that concussion incidents in practice went down in football. And the reason why that happened is because of rules changes. You know, they're not hitting as much. They're not engaged in, in hitting activities as much. So that decreases their overall risk of concussion as well. And so the awareness and the education are a huge component of this prevention program that we're preaching. Um, those are the things that we need to do. Cheerleading is the second most common uh, risk of injury behind football in, pra in practice. Cheerleading. And it's because they're practicing, typically unsupervised, or doing stunts that they're trying to perfect to do in front of a crowd or in the competition. And they may not be practicing on the safest, safest of surfaces. So in order for them to you know, change that, we have to look at that and say, what can we do for cheerleaders to decrease their risk of injury? And, and those are the, that, that's how we get to these you know, prevention questions, is by being smart and making sure that the trends that we see, we can kind of reverse and decrease the incidence. I love that awareness message. Just kind of keep talking about it. You know, you've, we've seen the decrease happening, starting to happen at least, and to keep being mindful about, you know, if you do have a concussion, be smart about it. Take yourself out, like you said, of the game. Yeah, one brain, that's it. Yeah, That's absolutely. all you got. <laughs> got to protect it. That's great advice. So unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you, Dr. Figler, for being here. My pleasure. To learn more about concussion treatment and minimizing your risk, visit clevelandclinic.org slash concussion. If you want to listen to more Health Essentials podcasts by Cleveland Clinic experts, subscribe on iTunes or visit clevelandclinic.org slash And Don't forget, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to stay up to date on the latest health tips, news, and information. Thanks again for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. This concludes this Cleveland Clinic Health Essentials podcast. Thank you for listening. Join us again soon.